Welcome to episode 71 of Get Out Alive, what is typically a bi-weekly podcast about animal tax, but today we have a very special episode with an even more special guest. I'm your host, Ashley, and this may be my favorite episode yet, because I had the honor of sitting down with Cy Montgomery, who has written many books such as Soul of an Octopus, How to Be a Good Creature, Spell of the Tiger, and most recently, Of Time and Turtles, Mending the World Shell by Shattered Shell. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you may remember our 64th episode in which we discussed Sai's book about man-eating tigers and the Shunderbuns. And although I did ask her some questions about her time there and what it was like looking for tigers that actively hunt people, we talk about so much more, especially about turtles, which is a type of animal we do not often get to talk about on this podcast because they aren't out there attacking people. But before we get into the interview, I just want to note a few things. So first of all, before we started recording, I was talking to Sai about one of her books that I loved called The Hawk's Way, which is about her time practicing falconry here in New Hampshire. So we touch on that a little bit during the interview. So that's what that's about. Just a note on that. And then there's also a few times near the beginning that you'll hear what sounds like an email notification. So I apologize in advance. I try to cut them out where I could, but it only happens a handful of times. But that is all I had. So let's get into my interview with Sai Montgomery. My name is Cy Montgomery. I go by she, her. I'm an author of over 35, I think it's up to 36, maybe 37 books. <laughs> and I, and I, I get described as a writer adventurer. I would say those are very apt titles. I've seen you described as a naturalist as well. And I think that's also extremely fitting. <laughs> well, thank you. I wear lots of hats. Yeah. So what was your path to becoming an author? Like, did you always want to do that? Or did it just like kind of you fell into it? Well, when I was little, and I'm talking about before I could even read, I wanted to work with animals. Animals were always my people. I never identified as a little girl. And in fact, as soon as I could speak, I informed my parents that I was actually a horse. <laughs> My mother was horrified and took me to the pediatrician. I almost said veterinarian, took me to the pediatrician. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, she'll grow out of it. And I did when I realized actually I was a dog. So oh my big problem growing up was everyone was so eager to teach me to be a little girl and I had no interest in this. And finally, when I was like six, my parents brought home a Scottish terrier puppy named Molly. And even though she was younger than me, she matured faster than I did. And I could see that. And I apprenticed myself to her. I had found my older sister slash mentor slash muse. And my dream was to live in the woods in a hollow tree and have her teach me all the secrets of the animals. And although Molly is gone now, I keep her picture on my desk and I'm pretty much living that dream, apprenticing myself to all these different animals who have been so generous in showing me their secrets. But as far as writing, I thought I would be a veterinarian until I began to read. My father began sharing with me articles in the New York Times when I was little that were about animals. This is just what I'm starting to read, and he helped me read them. Well, what were all the stories about in the New York Times in the 1960s when I was learning to read? They were all about animals going extinct. Mm. They were being polluted out of their environments. They were being crowded out of their world by our huge numbers. They were being overhunted. 
it was entirely our fault. And it was then as a small child that I realized that possibly as a writer, I might be able to do even more good for my animal friends than I could be if I became a veterinarian. So that is what I did. Yeah, you know, I had the same experience growing up, not where I thought that I was like an animal, but I definitely identified more with animals than people per se. But I feel like when you say, when you tell someone as a kid that you love animals, it's often, okay, cool, we're going to put you in this veterinarian box and there's no other options for you. You know, there kind of wasn't because, you know, I was born in 1958 and actually women didn't even go into veterinary practice very much back then. But that never bothered me. I I heard about, you know, so many people my age, women um, growing up, looked at the professions of folks working with animals and they saw Jacques Cousteau, like a guy, and they they Mm -hmm. saw, you know, um, researchers traveling to Africa and South America, exploring the jungles, and it was usually some guy. But I guess because I didn't identify particularly as a human to start with, the sex of the humans doing the thing I wanted to do didn't bother me one bit, did not apply to me as far as Mm -hmm. I was concerned. And I, I mean, I still think being a veterinarian is one of the highest and best uses of a human life. But I, I guess one of my talents was I, I like didn't pay attention to anybody who tried to put me in a box or told me that yeah. I couldn't be what I wanted to be. Well, your most recent book of Time and Turtles, Mending the World Shell by Shattered Shell, is about turtles, their biology, and what it takes to rehab them, among many other things. So can you tell us why you chose to write about turtles and why write about them now? Well, my last really big heart book that took me years to research and I totally immersed myself in was called The Soul of an Octopus. And the subtitle was A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness. Well, for this book, I felt it was time to do another deep dive. And I thought I would look at what is considered the other deep question in philosophy other than consciousness. And that is time. And at this point, I had crossed the line into my 60s. And it's then that you start thinking about time in a different way, because you have a bunch of it accrued. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel like your time is running out like sands in an hourglass. I haven't really felt that. But The turtles have taught me so much about the nature of time. And little did I know, though, that I'd be living the stories in this book during the pandemic when Mm. time for most of us just stopped. But turtle time kept on going. And they helped me to think through into the mystery of time. And they were the perfect guides, you know, since after all, you know, they're they're ancient creatures. They rose at the same time as the dinosaurs. They survived the asteroid impact. They survived the the glacial ice ages. They've survived so much. They know so much. They live so long. They have excellent long memories. And they show us that there's nothing wrong with being old. And I'm (laughs) kind of proud that I share being old with some of my favorite 
individuals who happen to be turtles. One of my closest friends is a turtle who is probably my age. And many turtles live to 100 or more. The oldest known turtle lived to 288. Wow. Just got better and better with every year. Yeah, I always jokingly say that time is a social construct, and I've never felt that so hard than after reading your book, especially when you talked about how animals process time differently, which I had never considered. And you pointed out that like turtles process time or like visually slower than we do. So although we can see a car, turtles might see it as just a blur and they don't even realize that it's a car coming at them. And I had never considered maybe that's why they get run over so often. Yeah. Besides people being cruel, obviously. But well, and also they they can't many turtles can't move extremely fast. Some can. Mm. Soft shells, spiny soft shells can run faster than a 10 year old doing the hundred yard dash. But most turtles, there's not a whole lot that they could do even if they could see the cars, but they can't. And earlier, as you and I were talking about falconry, it was when I was researching that book and started taking falconry that I began to realize the different flicker fusion ratios of different animals. I did not know until my falconry instructor, Nancy Cowan, told me that while we look at a hummingbird's wings beating and see a blur, other animals, including hawks, can process that visual information so differently that they see the hummingbird's individual wing strokes. Mm. But it's on the opposite end of that spectrum where we would expect and in fact do find turtles. Turtles who are hit on the road probably never saw the car that hit them. Mm. So your book is about more than just turtles, of course. So you talk about things like traditional Jewish burial practices, how insects perceive time, like we were just talking about, and even what it takes to be a transgender person. So were there any tangents or facts that you really wanted to fit into this book, but you couldn't? Yeah, actually, um, there are always are things that end up <laughs> on the on the cutting room floor. There were some stories, uh, such as, gosh, one time, Matt Patterson, the artist and one of the main characters in the book, and I went out and we tracked box turtles through the woods with radio telemetry with these wonderful Massachusetts scientists. But it it didn't like fit in the narrative of the book, Mm -hmm. even though it was a wonderful story. And I, I took copious notes and these people certainly deserve a ton of credit for the fascinating things that they are doing that never made it in. Mm. There was a concept I wanted to discuss further also, which is a Jewish mystical concept that I learned about from my husband, Howard Mansfield, who has written extensively about time and about repair. And that is called Tikkun. And he wrote so beautifully about this. I just felt like I couldn't step on, on his words, Mm. but This knowledge really helped me as I wrote my book. There's this concept that in the beginning of the world, light from God spilled as if from a bucket. And it's our job to pick up the spilled light and restore it. And in this way, our job is to constantly repair the broken world. So the the idea of repairing our broken world, which seems like a very good use of a life right now. Mm -hmm. It goes back 
hundreds or thousands of years. People have wanted to do this and recognize the urgency of repairing the world for a long time. And so we're joining a great tradition when we make our attempt to mend a world we see as shattered, whether we are mending broken turtle shells, whether we're trying to restore the peace of dark night skies, whether we're trying to bring families or nations or the globe together, we're all united in this effort to make the world whole and perfect again. Mm. That was so good. It's so hard for me to be like, okay, here's another question after that was so beautifully put. My gosh. Well, I guess this ties in. So one of my favorite parts of the book was when you're part of a team rescuing stranded sea turtles in the middle of winter, which obviously is part of this whole like mending the world back together by helping endangered species. So can you tell us more about that experience and why it was so important? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it was, it was a blast. First mm-hmm. of all, because it seemed so unlikely we do not yeah. expect here in New England to be seeing turtles on a beach. We do not expect here in New England to be seeing turtles in the dead of winter during a snowstorm. And yet, this is exactly what Matt and I were preparing to do on a day in which all the power was knocked out in our part of New Hampshire. And we drove down to the Cape to join our friends, Alexia Bell and Natasha Nowick and other friends from the Turtle Rescue League to work with the Audubon Wellfleet people who have been rescuing turtles who get cold stunned and wash up on the beaches in the winter. So this is increasingly a problem for turtles because of climate change. Warming faster than any other body of water in the world the Gulf of Maine, the area around the Cape, is warming so quickly that turtles who are swimming out off the Cape right now think it's not time to migrate deeper into the Atlantic until it's too late, until it is too cold to do so. And because they're reptiles and they can't generate their own body heat, they start swimming, they run into this cold and they just get so cold they can't swim anymore. And their bodies just start to shut down and they are washed like driftwood back up on shore during storms. So we were on the alert. Is a storm coming? Is a storm coming? And once we heard a storm was coming, we headed out from New Hampshire to, to join them. And it's a nighttime activity. At least it was on that day because of the timing of the storm. So we were out on the beach in December during a storm at night looking for turtles. It was surreal. Mm -hmm. It was a long, long, hard walk. And my hat is really off to Matt Patterson, who is super strong. He's just turned 40 recently. He was a wrestler. He's got muscles in his arms as big as my thigh, but it still was quite an effort for him to haul this sled full of Kemp's Ridley turtles and heavy seaweed for what turned out to be more than 10 miles over the wet sand of the Cape that night. But it was so worth it because these five highly endangered turtles who would have definitely died, 
definitely were going to live. We got them all in time and they were taken to the New England Aquarium's Quincy facility where they were rehabbed and let go and were just fine. And to be able to take a hand at something like that, mm-hmm. help someone live, they'll, they'll live a hundred years, you know, if fate is kind to them. And to be able to, to save someone like that, oh my gosh, what, what, yeah. what an amazing feeling. I know, you know, it's one thing to, not that I'm saying rescuing like a squirrel, for example, isn't a noble thing to do, but to rescue a species where like, yeah, for a hundred years, they can be reproducing and making more and more of those endangered turtles. Like that is such a huge deal. Yeah, right. You are. And turtles, even though we think we, we know, we think we know turtles and we see turtles everywhere and you go by the pond and there's a whole bunch of them in the summer piled up on a log. Turtles as a group, which in encompasses over 350 species is the most endangered terrestrial vertebrate on our planet. Mm. So when you save one, you're saving generations of an endangered species as well as saving that individual's wild and precious and hopefully long life. Mm. So to pivot from turtles for a bit, so we recently did an episode on this podcast on tigers and the Sunderbonds, and we discussed your book, Spell of the Tiger, The Man-Eaters of the Sunderbonds. And I have, ever since reading that book, been dying to know, like, what was it like purposefully seeking out tigers known to eat people as a person? (laughs) Well, first of all, I had to convince my husband that I would be just fine because, (laughs) you know, they were man-eaters. And in fact, they mostly do eat men. The women stay home where they can be eaten by crocodiles. So that calmed him down a little bit. (laughs) Um, But I discovered that most of the time, it's not the tigers coming into the village to snack on the people. It's the people going into a tiger reserve where it is illegal for them to go, who are up to mischief, Mm -hmm. end up getting eaten by tigers. So although I did go into the tiger reserve, I did so with proper permissions. And frankly, I was just so mesmerized Mm -hmm. by the idea of seeing these swimming tigers who swim out after your boat and get on board and eat you that I, I wasn't frightened at all. What I was frightened of was not being able to see any tigers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's totally fair. So like, can you explain a little bit what was it like being in that part of the world that's so unique and has tigers that swim regularly in salt water? Yeah, this is the only mangrove swamp in the world that has tigers. And mangrove swamps feel absolutely magical. You know, the tides are coming in and flushing through the forests and the forests are flooded for part of the day. So the land and the tides, everything's getting resculpted. So you never feel like you've really got a handle on everything. You have this feeling of being lost almost all the time, being at the mercy of something larger all the time. And when I felt this most keenly was when I was on the small handmade wooden boat that was piloted by my friend, Jarendranath Marita, who lived in the village of Jamesport. I made eventually four different expeditions into Shundaman and 
the first one, everything that could go wrong went wrong. I was supposed to go in with a scientist who spoke English and Bengali. He had a speedboat. He was going to help me with the permitting process. You can't just go to Shunderman. You have to like go through this long permitting process to get there. Mm-hmm. All of that fell through. So I ended up out there with my friend and photographer, Diane Taylor Snow, with no translator, no speedboat, no guide, no scientist, completely at the mercy of whatever this place and its animals had to throw at me. And I'm so glad that I met Jarendra and that he took me and Diane on his boat. But what was horrible was because I thought I was going to have a translator, I I didn't learn Bengali. Mm. Back then, this was in the uh, early 90s, back then, Bengali was just not taught anywhere. There weren't even language tapes. And wow. it took months for me to mail away and finally get a Bengali English, English Bengali dictionary, which had to come from Bangladesh. Actually, there were two of them. They're thick and they arrive and I'm thrilled. I throw it open and there's the English and next to it, squiggles. It was all in the Bengali alphabet, which I couldn't read. So I had learned some phrases in Bengali, but not enough to conduct interviews. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Jarendra, you know, he lived out in the boonies in a beautiful handmade house made out of mud. And he hadn't gone to college to learn English. I mean, he had learned a little English. He learned more English than I Bengali. But every single word we had in each other's language, we had to deploy like a Swiss army knife. And he kept telling me, tiger, accident, here. And I would say, when? And invariably, he would say, yesterday. And I thought, Yesterday, yesterday, a a tiger ate someone yesterday right here. I didn't realize until much later that the word yesterday meant any time in the past. Oh, boy. (laughs) So it was real, real hard. But the thing was, I came back and came back and came back again. I was committed to it. I, I had stayed, I think, for my first trip. I was actually in Bangladesh and then India. The total trip was about two months long. Wow. And I, I came back a second time and a third time. And then I went back with National Geographic TV a fourth time. Um, so they knew that I was really committed to this. And I eventually found these wonderful translators who I am still in touch with who live in Calcutta. They were, were young college students. Oh, wow. And they were up for going to this Tiger Reserve and this fabulous adventure. Through them, and thanks to the fact that Jarendra and his family and his village were so welcoming to me. I think I got a much better and much deeper story than I would have had all of my previous arrangements with this wonderful scientist worked out. I did end up meeting the scientist later and interviewing him. But this way I went in humbly as this foreign woman full of curiosity asking for them to graciously favor me with their knowledge. And these were poor people in a country that operates with a caste system. And having a scientist connected with the university, a big, you know, male respected scientist, Mm -hmm. 
may have made them nervous, but I didn't make them nervous because I was harmless, but they did respect me for being an author. And I knew the word for author. So I was able to get that across. Lakika. Nice. <laughs> in, in West Bengal and in Bangladesh as well, people revere writing to the point that I was not allowed by them to put my notebook on the ground because it was disrespectful to my book. Oh. But these people, you know, they live among tigers all the time. And almost everyone I met had had a friend or a family member killed by a tiger because many times um, people went into the tiger reserve. Sometimes they were illegally poaching wood. Sometimes they were illegally taking fish. The reason it's illegal is that you need to have some areas that are off limits to humans so mm -hmm. that fish, you know, can replenish themselves in special nurseries and so that the trees have a a place to grow and, and then produce the seed pods that they drop into the water and distribute it everywhere. There's good reasons for this. And the people know the reasons. They encode those reasons though, not in stories of science, but in sacred stories about a tiger god and a forest goddess. And they shared these stories with me that might have been dismissed by a university researcher. Mm -hmm. But I knew that these stories were deeply true. Maybe not true in terms of time and direct fact, but true in their heart in the way that the parables of Jesus are true. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the book is as much about their culture as it is about tigers. Like, I didn't expect going into it to know so much about their culture at the end, but it was beautiful. And honestly, as a scientist made me rethink the things I consider to be true. Because I'm like, well, I mean, who's to say that there isn't a tiger god? And that's why these strange mystical things seem to happen there, you know? Right. And so many of the things that they say that we would dismiss as silly superstition are, in fact, excellent natural history observations, such mm -hmm. as, you know, they would say, oh, the tiger can become invisible. Well, to a Westerner, you think that they turn transparent, like mm. cling wrap <laughs> or, or Casper the friendly ghost. But no, a tiger can become invisible just by hiding behind a blade of grass because their camouflage renders them invisible to us. So that is accurate. The tiger can fly through the air. When you and I think of that, we might picture Tinkerbell flying through the air or a hawk mm -hmm. flying through the air. But, but no, tigers can leap for quite a distance. And when they do, they're flying through the air. Mm -hmm. So my practice was to recognize that these people knew more about that area than I did mm -hmm. and to listen for truth when they spoke. And I think this is something that we need to apply when we meet new people, when we visit other cultures, and when we read our own sacred texts. I get frustrated as a Christian by folks who feel like, you know, I'm dismissing the Bible because I don't think that the world was created in six days. Mm -hmm. You know, that the Bible is not a big book of, of answers about science. And 
when you speak to people who live close to the earth, when they tell you their truths, they're not doing it in science speak. Mm -hmm. But they have a great deal of knowledge. And what they're telling us is true in a deeper sense in the way that a parable or or a myth is deeply true. Mm -hmm. So speaking of your time over there, I'm assuming you did get to see tigers. And didn't you have an experience where a tiger tried to get onto the boat you were on? A tiger swam after our boat, Mm. but we did not know it at the time. Oh boy. Yeah, it was even more magical because we didn't see it. Now on our first our first trip with Diane, we did see a tiger swimming in front of our boat. And it was such an unexpected sight that my brain registered it as a rock. It a striped rock, orange and black, mm-hmm. but it was a tiger's head, but rocks don't move. But that's what my brain saw until I realized it's a swimming tiger. The tiger that swam after our boat though, that was even more amazing. And how did we know what happened without seeing it? Well, we were on Jarendra's little handmade boat and it's low in the water. A tiger could very easily get on it. We were going down a main part of the river and then turned up just a little tributary. These tributaries, because they, you know, the sea is rising and, and falling, you got to be really careful because you can get stuck in these tributaries. And we saw that we were fixing to get stuck. In fact, we kind of were stuck. So we decided to turn around. While we were turning around is when the tiger was yards from our boat. And we knew it because we saw absolutely fresh footprints, pug marks coming out of the water leading into the forest. And we thought, oh my gosh, we just missed seeing this, this tiger. Where did he come from? So we checked the area around us and we saw no other pug marks. So we retraced our steps to the larger river and we saw where the tiger had seen our boat, had come out of the forest. We saw the footsteps leading out of the forest, had swum after our boat, had turned with our boat up the little tributary. And then for some reason decided not to get on our boat and just walk back into the forest. Oh, how lucky is that? Yeah, it was really great. (laughs) I have certainly enjoyed my life since then. And it's been quite (laughs) wonderful. I'm sure your husband was grateful. (laughs) Yes, this is true. And I don't think I had any insurance at that point. Oh, boy. Would you consider that area of the world the most dangerous in terms of the wildlife there that you've experienced? Well, you know what? The only time an animal has ever hurt me was in Borneo, and it was a mosquito. Oh, boy. I got dengue fever, which can kill you. It's called breakbone fever. And that's the only time any animal has ever hurt me. I don't feel in danger around animals at all. I have been endangered by people. I have twice had a gun held to my head in my trips. Oh, my gosh. People scare the hell out of me, but animals, not so much. (laughs) That's totally fair. Yeah, that's um, something we actually talk about in this podcast quite a bit. Like, 
we have, you know, listeners around the world and we have some from Australia who have said like, oh man, I can't believe that you guys go hiking where there's bears and coyotes. And I'm like, not one time have I been worried about a black bear, but I am always worried about people messing with me in the woods. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah. it's funny that they're in Australia, which is full of poisonous snakes and redback spiders. <laughs> Again, you know, I've seen redback spiders. I lived in Australia for six months in a tent and they're very shy. And you just don't want to squash them, in which case mm -hmm. they're going to defend themselves. But most most animals really aren't going to bother. They also have uh, salties, you know, the crocodiles, yeah. you know. So it's very funny that they're afraid of our black bears. I've stuck my head in a den with a fully awake mother bear and her cubs. My oh. face inches from her face, and she didn't even square her lips at me. I mean, she didn't even snort. <laughs> our black bears in the east. They're going to look at you and run away. I know so many yep. scientists who, in an effort to get weights on cubs and make sure everybody is all right, have been stuffing mother's cubs into bags to weigh, to weigh <laughs> them. And the mother bear runs away. Yeah, yep. a black bear is really not going to bother you. So I would welcome all our Aussie friends. Come on over. The, the woods are fine. What you got to <laughs> yeah. worry about here is ticks. And if they're yeah. going to give you Lyme disease. I know. It's so funny. It is really just what you are used to and what you know. Because like when I go out west, I'm terrified of grizzly bears. But a lot of the people there just, it's just part of living there. You just get used to it. So Yeah, that's right. Grizzlies. I've never um, met a grizzly in the wild. Have you ever seen one? I saw one. I went to Yellowstone two, I think two or three years ago now. And I looked through a nice man's monoscope and saw a grizzly with a wolf. But for some wow. reason... You could probably relate to this, but like my whole life had been leading up to me going to Yellowstone. Like that was the big thing I wanted to do. I wanted to see wolves in the wild. They're one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And I got up at like four in the morning with my parents. We went out to Lamar Valley in Yellowstone where all the wolves were known to be. And there was just this group of like 40 people all gathered around this parking lot watching the wolves. And for some reason, like even though I saw a wolf through this monoscope with a grizzly bear, which is like the best you could ask for at Yellowstone, yeah. it just it didn't feel right to me. Like it didn't feel as exciting as if I was to go out into the woods by myself and see it on my own. You know what I mean? Yeah, I totally, I totally know what you mean. It's still massively cool that you've got to yeah. twofer also, you know, two teachers yeah. in one scope. That's great. But yeah, there is something wonderful about the intimacy of meeting a wild animal unexpectedly mm -hmm. when you're alone, when the two of you are alone. That is yeah. really, really special. Yeah, like I saw on that same trip, I saw this one area that was full of rocks on this little hike. And I was like, I bet that there is a pika in there somewhere. And if oh, I just wow. stand here still, and sure enough, I stood there for like 15 minutes and just looked at the same area, saw movement, and there was a pika. And that was like the oh. highlight of the trip because I was like, I put in the effort. It was just me and this little dude. And it was, yeah, the best wildlife encounter I'd had that whole trip. Did he look at you for a while or did he just pop up and then pop oh, back down in the car? No, he was going about his business, but I got some good pictures, which is what I really cared about. Oh, so. great. Oh, yeah. great. That's wonderful. So that being said, I guess, what has been the most harrowing adventure you've gone on while researching for a book? Was it when you got dengue fever or was there some other terrible experience or scary experience? Well, probably the most harrowing and probably the most dangerous thing that that I did was I, I went to um, areas of Cambodia where there's a lot of landmines and I was riding around on a motorcycle 
and very, very muddy area. And again, what you have to worry about besides unexploded ordnance is people there. It's kind of at that time. Anyway, it was rather lawless out there. I was researching a book called search for the golden moon bear. Mm. And at one point our guide looked very nervous and we asked our friend Sun Hyun, like, why is our guide so nervous? And Sun Hyun told us, well, in this area about a year ago, he was kidnapped and held hostage <gasps> in the woods right here. And I kind of felt like, well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh. the people you gotta, you gotta watch out for. Yeah. But generally, you know, with the with the animals themselves, and maybe it's just because I've been lucky, but I don't think I've really felt threatened by any animal ever. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of answers the next question I had, which is from our patron, Emily, who asked, what animal have you worked with that has scared you the most? <laughs> oh, humans. Absolutely. Yeah. That um, makes a lot of sense. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm not crazy about leeches. The, um, mm. I, one time, this was in Australia, in Queensland, I was out looking for cassowaries. I mean, cassowaries are basically dinosaurs with a big yeah. helmet of bone on their head and a killer claw. And they do, they do kill people. Mm -hmm. They haven't killed anyone in Australia in a really long time. They kill people in Papua New Guinea all the time. And I've been there, but when they kill people in Papua New Guinea, it's because the people are trying to kill them and who, who can blame them. But anyway, so I'm in the forest mm -hmm. looking for a cassowary, not finding one, come back out. I'm waiting in the, parking lot of this place for my friends to pick me up they come in their car and i see their faces through the windshield spotting me and there's a look of horror growing over their faces as they see me and i'm like what is my bra showing or something I mean, yeah. what is the matter and i look down and i'm covered in blood oh god it was from leeches i had dozens oh. and dozens of leeches all over me and leech drool as you know contains an anticoagulant that makes you just bleed for hours and hours and hours oh my God. so that that was probably the most gruesome experience but as well as the anticoagulant leeches also have an anesthetic so that it it doesn't feel like you've been shot by a machine gun although yeah. it looks like you have <laughs> That must have been so funny to your friends, too, because you're just covered in blood, like smiling, happy to see them. And they're like, oh, my God, she must be in shock. <laughs> well, once I figured out that I was covered with leeches, I was kind of in a hurry to get to a shower and get them off. Oh, yeah. But they were, you know, once they fill with blood, they just plop right off you. And they were like falling out of my pants legs onto the floor oh. of the car. I mean, it was just, ah! <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, that and like leeches and ticks scare me way more and like gross me out than any other animal on the planet. I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, me, me too. I really don't. I mean, nobody, nobody else really bums me out so much. I'm not crazy about biting flies, including mm. um, mosquitoes who are flies, particularly in the tropics when they can carry all kinds of diseases. But yeah. they're just doing what they got to do. And usually there's a way around getting totally exsanguinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So on the flip side of that question, patron Robin Smith and Emily asked similar questions. So which individual animal that you've met or worked with has been your favorite? Well, he's right here. Thurber, a border collie. <laughs> he's eight years old. He's the love of my life. Oh my God. Oh. 
But in terms of species, if that's what they would like to know, yeah, probably the, the most interesting to me because they are so unlike us and um, is octopus. Mm-hmm. I wrote that octopus book. In fact, I got a new book coming out on octopus, interestingly, oh, from National Geographic nice. and Random House in the spring called Secrets of the Octopus. But my first octopus book, which was The Soul of an Octopus, I got to know very well several giant Pacific octopuses who would recognize me, look into my face, choose to come to me, flush red with excitement when they saw me, love to play with me, were very gentle with me, clearly recognized individuals, some of whom they liked, some of whom they didn't. Mm -hmm. But talk about an alien being, to have someone like that be your friend is amazing. This is, you know, critter who has not one bone in their whole body. They can pour their baggy bodies, even though they might be 40 pounds through an opening the size of a clementine. You know, they can change color and shape. They can taste with their entire body. They have venom like like a snake and they can shoot ink. They just, their mouths are in their armpits. They have three hearts. Their brain <laughs> is a circle around their throat. And yet you could be friends with someone like that who chooses mm-hmm. to spend time with you and share their world with you. And I am still completely awestruck by that. Mm. I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me right now, but The Soul of an Octopus is the most recommended book by like any other science loving person that I know. Like every single person I've met who I'm like, what's a good book recommendation? They say The Soul of an Octopus. Wow. Well, that makes me feel great. Thank you so <laughs> yeah, much. No, it's a very beloved book. Also, have you heard the theory that some people think octopuses came from space and that there actually are aliens? Yeah, I have heard that. But, you know, we are all aliens. Life truly was seeded from outer space on our planet because our planet was just, well, without form and void, pretty much, according according to both the Bible and what we know of, you know, the Big Bang. So the elements necessary for life rained down on our planet from outer space. So we're all aliens. Very good point. That is a great rebuttal. <laughs> or, as they say in uh, the the Age of Aquarius, I think Age of Aquarius, we are stardust. Mm. I do love that saying. Yeah, and that we all contain stardust. I love we, that. We do. And to stardust we return, which is lovely. <laughs> so, Patron Ness asked, you've worked on a lot of different species. Is there an animal that you don't know enough about and that you plan on researching in the future? Oh, gosh. I don't know enough about the ones I have researched. I know. Um, yeah, gosh, there, yeah, there's a ton there's a ton of animals I want to learn about. Um the next animal that I'm going to travel to research is the giant manta ray. And this, yeah, I can't wait. This is something that I we had planned to do. Gosh, it's years and years since we planned to do it. But all kinds of things screwed up, but I'm going to Ecuador to work with Michelle Guerrero who is studying these giant manta rays, huge, essentially they're like flying carpets who mm-hmm. can launch themselves out of the water and fly through the air and then plunge back down. They're relatives of sharks. They're very smart. They can live for 70 years. They do recognize individual humans. They are known to come to humans for help when they have a hook or some line lodged in them. Wow. And they frequent this one very special area 
to basically go to the spa. When they get full of icky parasites or just want their dead skin cleaned off, they go to this one area and different species of cleaner fish come and tend to them. And during that time, you get to see lots of them. So I'll be going there in August, September to research wow. a book for young people on this fantastic nice. species and this great guy doing the research. Awesome. Yeah. Also, Ecuador is a fantastic place for wildlife. So I'm sure you're going to see a lot of good stuff just besides the manta rays as well. Yeah. Have you? Did you go? I've never been, but it is on my list. I From everyone that goes there, the pictures are incredible. Yeah. And, and this is not actually in the Galapagos, but the Galapagos is one of those places that I've Ugh. always, always wanted to go. Unfortunately, mm. Ecuador this morning, I heard on the radio that, you know, it's being a big mess right now. There's all kinds of drug gangs running around and i just i just hope that isn't wrecking their tourism trade which keeps alive um a lot of the conservation efforts that that country is doing to conserve these unique animals oh boy i feel like that's the way with pretty much every even our country it's like oh man there's certain places you go and it just everywhere is slightly messed up which stinks i know there's just so many of us yeah you know, even though humans kind of aren't my people, I did marry one <laughs> and I have lots of human friends, but we are so numerous right now that even if you love our earth and try to tread lightly, there's just so many people everywhere mm-hmm. that, you know, you almost can't help but cause disruption. So yeah. for me, what that says is that right now is a great time for us to be alive and be courageous and be creative in coming up with the solutions to make up for all the problems that our kind is intentionally or otherwise causing. Yeah. Well, that is a great segue to our last question, which is if after reading your book of Time and Turtles or just this conversation, people are feeling a call to action to help turtles, What can they do to get involved? There's a whole bunch of good stuff you can do from crossing the turtle that you see crossing the street in the direction that they're going. Don't be afraid to pick up a snapper. Just learn the right way to do it. Two, if you see a turtle hit on the road, call a wildlife rehabilitator. Even if the turtle is dead, they can help because they often Mm -hmm. can harvest the eggs and incubate them and release those babies. Dozens and dozens of babies in some cases. Join an organization like Turtle Survival Alliance. They are needing people to support their work, protecting turtles around the world who are endangered or even in some cases extinct in the wild, but only being kept alive at breeding facilities such as those that they operate. Also, you can be a volunteer for some of these places. You can be a volunteer even if you don't want to work with turtles per se. You can help do some fundraising. You can help with publicity. You can help Mm -hmm. contribute your artwork. There's so many ways that we can help. And in the back of every one of my books, I give some references for people who want to do more because that is exactly why I write these books. Not Mm -hmm. just as a a pan of praise of the glories of these, these wonderful animals and the people working to understand them and protect them, but also 
to mobilize the readers who are moved by their stories, who are moved by their beauty, who want to become part of the solution. Well, Cy, where can people find you specifically? Well, I'm in Hancock, New Hampshire. Um, <laughs> and, Don't go uh, knocking on her door. <laughs> boy, well, website, CyMontgomery.com. And I update that with news and new books and reviews and media and all kinds of good stuff like that. I'm on Facebook. Um, thanks to my young assistant, I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, although I have no idea how to operate it. And <laughs> now... I am on Get Out Alive podcast. <laughs> totally awesome. Well, thanks so much for being here. And that was my interview with Cy Montgomery. I cannot recommend her books enough, especially her new book of Time and Turtles. And even if you're not someone who likes to read nonfiction, like I've been reading a ton of fantasy lately, but her method of storytelling keeps you hooked even as you're learning about science. And you can find her books anywhere at any local bookstores or online. And if you'd like to follow her on social media or see links to people or places mentioned within the episode, check out the episode description and I'll have everything for you there. Also, if you are a member of our expert survivalist tier on Patreon, which you can also find a link to in the episode description, soon I will be sending out your next gift. And it was entirely inspired by this episode and her new book. So please make sure I have your correct address within the next few weeks so it can get to you. You can also follow us for free on Patreon for some extra content and latest updates from us, and you can also support the show for free by rating us five stars wherever you're listening and also by subscribing. Otherwise, I'll keep this outro short and sweet. You can find links to our social medias within the episode description as well, or on our website, getalivepodcast.com, where you can also find stickers of ours and other merch. Thank you so much to my good friend and second grade husband, Josh Walsh, for making our intro music and his brother, Jesse Walsh, for being our editor. And I'll be back in two weeks for a new animal attack story. Thanks. Thanks.